Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When you've got significant unemployment, you've got a massive deficit. You've got states and counties right, really in the hole financially. At some point, the healthcare system has got to get rationalized. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today on the show, if there ever were a human Wikipedia sentinel of digital health history, it would be Matt Holt, founder of the healthcare blog circa 2003, co-founder and co-chairman of Health 2.0, president at Smack.Health, and self-proclaimed healthcare curmudgeon. We will put that to the test today. Beyond the obvious Wayback Machine discourse, Matt genuinely takes us down the origin story rabbit hole to pretty much the exact moment when the tubes of the interweb met up with whatever an EMR was back when must-see TV was a thing. And now, 30 years later, we have the monopolistic, dystopian, and antithetical dumpster fire that we have today. But good things have happened along the way, thanks to pioneers or self-proclaimed forecasters like Matt Holt. You know, we've indeed come quite far from the days of ARPANET, IRC, and AOL floppy disks. Look it up, kids. So let the curmudgeoning commence. Enjoy my conversation with the one, the only, and the deservedly British Matt Holt. Look, I'm I'm just thrilled to have you on my show. This is such a throwback way back. By the way, I'm recording now, so you're officially liable for everything you say. Okay, well, I'm always liable for anything I say anyway. You know, you heard from the show I did with Jane Sarenson Khan. I'm in the way back machine mode, and I'm back behind a mic, and I'm, I'm so nostalgic for where all these things started and how, you know, today's advocates, for better or for worse, they, maybe they don't need to know, but like all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into getting all this stuff off the ground in like 2004, 5, 6, 7. It's like the stuff Indiana Jones tried to find at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> I feel like that's us, right? We're that thing that the boulder tried to kill him when he escaped from the cave. Then the, they shot the arrows at him and he took him from the plane. And we're on the plane. <laughs> we, we flew the plane away. What an, <laughs> I mean, you've been doing this longer than that. Though. You started Hell 2, like you were already like 10 or 15 years into this when you started that, right? Yeah. So I was a random British guy, did a year at Stanford, hanging out, doing political science. By random coincidence, I mean, it really was random. I was literally sitting on one side of a table that a professor um, in a Japanese political economy class, the professor turned to one side of the table of people and said, okay, what do you want to study? It was like a study group. 
And I had come armed with the fact that I was going to go back to the Britain one day, and perhaps it would be good if I knew something about you know, the Japanese uh, coming to the European Union for, to build cars, because that was kind of, this is 1989, 1990, that was, that was what was going on then. It wasn't China was the big rival to the US, it was Japan. Anyway, and by the time he's turned to his left and gone round the table, and I, you know, 15 or 20 people have, have, have said something about what they're going to write about, it turns out that... Every, you know, I think five of them said they were going to do the Japanese car business in Europe. And I went, well, I'm not going to be number six. So on the spot, I said, well, you know, no one here is telling me about the Japanese domestic economy. Um, so why don't I look at either their welfare system or their healthcare system and take a look? So I did that. I actually said, yeah, you know, a couple of people written about it. There weren't many people written about the Japanese healthcare system in English at that point. But I wrote a term paper about it, you know, from a couple of the books that I did find. And then very next term, not even the next uh, you know, year, the next semester, a guy showed up with funding from the Japanese health ministry to study the Japanese healthcare system and compare it to the American healthcare system. <laughs> so, so you did something right by accident. Completely by accident. So like, you know, I'm a grad student. I was actually paying my own way, trying to find, you know, research work to support me. And, you know, lo and behold, this like fell in my lap. Like, you know, they go, so who do you know about, who knows about this? And I was the only person who knew anything about it. And it ended up, I ended up extending my time at Stanford, spending a lot more time doing that research, doing a lot of research on the US. And after a while, I realized that you know, the Japan stuff is interesting, but the US system, oh my God, is that screwed up. And I got to be kind of a policy, you know, uh, policy wonk on US healthcare policy. And then I had another one of those things where I, you know, I left there, I tried to find a job, eventually got a job at this place called the Institute for the Future, which again was damn lucky. I've been offered a, you know, I went looking for a bunch of jobs to a more sort of less interesting work that I would have taken because I was poor, but didn't get them. Institute for the Future did give me a job, very nice of them. And I'm in the door there. I'm supposed to be like the backup uh, guy helping with health policy and their the, the sort of general healthcare program. And this is where I met Jane because, I, I, you know, uh, in the door, they've sold a project on the future of IT in healthcare. And nobody was there really wanted to do it. So you know, I walk in the door and they say, hey, you, you're doing that. You better, <laughs> you, you better find out about this IT and healthcare stuff. And this is 93, right, early 94. So I'm getting, you know, as smart as I can about that stuff as quickly as possible, stealing, you know, basically doing the, uh, uh, we did a lot of Harry Potter in my family, doing the Demented's Kiss, you know, sucking Jane's <laughs> knowledge and <laughs> for stuff that are sold out of a, a rapid, rapid attempts because she's working with us as well. And at the same time, I mean, I had these remarkable moments. I mean, probably the most remarkable one is this guy called uh, Harvey Lightman, who was who was laid off from Apple. So go back to yeah, this is a kid's moment. Nineteen ninety three, wow. ninety four. Apple, I think it's ninety four. Apple uh, was in trouble, right? There was a time when they like took some money from Microsoft because they were going to go out of business. I recall that. Yes. <laughs> you know, now they're only worth two trillion dollars or whatever the hell. Maybe less today, and the stock market's going up and down. <laughs> well, but then they were like, you know, they had been this cool computer company. Now they were all falling apart. This guy was laid off, so there he is, and he's hanging out. He'd been an original Apple engineer from way back, and he was just doing researchy stuff. And I'm in his room, and he says, "Okay, yeah, uh, listen up. This is really interesting." And so I'm standing standing next to him for about I don't know two three minutes, and eventually his computer goes cheep 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 cheep. I went. What was that? He says, that was the sound of an Australian song thrush I've just downloaded from the website of the University of Adelaide or the University of South Australia in Adelaide. I remember this. And I went, what? He said, I've used this thing called the Mosaic Browser. Oh, God. This thing called the World Wide Web. Yes. I mean, 
WWWTF, you know, what was it, right? Let me ask you, Matt, how many AOL floppy disks were littered about that room? <laughs> well, he was going to be on that, right? Because uh, I had an AOL floppy disk and AOL account at one point. I had a CompuServe account. And then, you know, I, I moved from Stanford where everyone had an email. I'd been given an email address in like 1990. And when I went to Institute for the Future, they had internal email between them, but they didn't have external email, email accounts. This is 1993, the Institute for the Future didn't have that. Given that one of the guys who founded the Institute for the Future had also founded the ARPANET. <laughs> you, you, ARPANET. You should, should, should wow. have been a bit more advanced, but anyway. So you know, I, I got there right at a moment where healthcare was changing because it was the Clinton health reform and managed care and all that stuff. And you know, although it's taken forever, the use of technology in healthcare was just starting to change. Literally right there at the precipice yeah. of everything starting. That's incredible. Well, Matt, Matthew, if you go back 20 years, I mean, think about you as an amazing patient advocate. It was like the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, the Boston Women's Health Collective published Our Bodies, Ourselves. That was one of the first you know, consumer movement within healthcare. So we're, we're in 1970, and it you know, slowly percolated through the AIDS and the cancer movement during the 80s to the 90s, where pretty quickly after what I've been describing, by 96, Jane and I wrote a, wrote a piece called Telehealth, which actually would now be called Digital Health, or maybe Health 2.0, which was really about how were patients using technology to communicate with each other. And I spent a lot of time hanging out in you know, patient chat rooms on AOL and CompuServe and on the, on the web and on IRC and you know, just sort of those really early days. But there was already a ton of activity starting. And then by the time Yahoo got going, you know, it had thousands of healthcare groups, now obviously most of those are in sort of Facebook patient groups. There's a lot of controversy about that, I know. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of activity. And then some other, you know, amazing pioneers, uh, Gilles Friedman. Um, yes. ACOR, right? You know, in terms of, obviously, you know, Gilles, Gilles and he's still, uh, he's still wandering around the world with his camera and enjoying himself and hopping between Columbia and, uh, and, and, and Miami and elsewhere. But, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, with him and the other folks who are starting to build these really early online communities, which, you know, and, and you are a great example of this, have been, as it were, have been changing in some ways, metastasizing since then. But nonetheless, the same, the same principle applies, which is that patients are great supporters and teachers of other patients, and by the way, of professionals, of clinicians. You know, and, something that, and then once you go past, I'm a patient, you're a patient, what can we share with each other? Then you get down to the very, very, interesting and small sub-segments like <laughs> i'm too young for this right right so, i was yeah. i was talking to some colleagues about having you on the show today and they wanted to understand why the numbers 2.0 mattered 20 years ago or 15 <laughs> years ago like they're like what was 1.0 you just explained 1.0 well well I, i've explained 1.0 but the other thing about 1.0 is that the technology I mean, the web initial technology was go back to the University of South Australia putting a, a sound clip on their website and somebody downloading it. That was basically, it was a very, it was, it was a one-way traffic medium. The underlying uh, issue was that it made it easier for anybody or relatively easy for anybody to create the medium, right? So you, you took the printing press uh, or the radio or whatever it is, and you gave it to anybody. And that was web 1.0. There were tools um, that were being developed the bulletin boards and uh, the IRC and all this other stuff and some of the, some of the online chat rooms to create interaction. 
but it wasn't sort of mass interaction. Right. Very limited. Dial-up. It was dial-up, too. Yeah, well, I mean, A, it was dial-up, so it's hard to get there. And B, that you had to know a little bit how to move the user tools. It wasn't sort of obvious, right? Right. But relatively soon, and I would say probably driven by uh, sort of stock trading and what have you, there was a lot of back and forth on these message boards, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger over the late 90s, early 2000s. And then you started having a whole series of easier-to-use tools, right? Um, blogs which obviously you were there in the other days. I, I had a relatively early blog. Well, you had a blog in like 03, right? Like, yeah, like I, I actually back. had one before. Was I, I'd spent, I was in a personal health record startup in 2000, 2001. At the end of, very end of 2001, early 2002, it exploded. And not in a good way. I mean, imploded. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. There was no soft bank back then to write us a check for $100 million to keep going. Yes. <laughs> so I, I basically said, well, you know, Screw this! I'm leaving, and I went. Uh, lay on. I went. I went skiing. Managed to smash up my knee skiing. Got some. Got some uh, surgery done. Went and lay on the beach. And on that trip, I actually started a uh, a travel blog so my friends could see my photos. And that was the first time I used Blogspot. And when I came back, which was like early 2003, I thought, well, I better get back in, you know, to healthcare and start making some money. Get back to San Francisco and. I did all that stuff, started doing consulting. But then I thought, well, where, you know, around that time, the early politics blogs were taken off, particularly Daily Coast and Instapundit. Oh, my God. Yes. That really is a way back machine show. I mean, way back. Right? This is 2000. And they were going from like one random guy writing and three guys reading to like, you know, and these were putting people putting in their own servers. And there wasn't the infrastructure. Blog, Blogspot was kind of, uh, Blogger was kind of there. And I, and I had, and that's what I used the first bit. But then there was, uh, movable type and then WordPress and, you know, and, and it, those things started coming up. And I started the healthcare blog. I still remember this because because it's it's still occasionally offered to me. I thought, well, I wonder who's doing this in healthcare. Nobody. There was, you know, zero. Later on, I found out that uh, Histalk, Tim Histalk in the uh, health IT, you know, news blog, yeah. mm -hmm. which is a great, which is still going and, you know, still great. Still, I, mean, I read every time it comes out. Uh, was, was, he was, he was, he just started and there were uh, Jacob Ryder, who I sometimes, you know, who's, was at all scripts and then the ONC and now is running a sort of community health network up in uh, New York State. He had a blog from the 1999. So we argue amongst us who was the first, right? But but the point is there wasn't much because I went online. So well, I will start healthcareblog.com. I went to, to GoDaddy or what it was to like to book healthcareblog.com. Somebody else had it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well. Let me do thehealthcareblog.com. Right. And that was free, so I took that. And that's why I have the healthcare blog. And healthcareblog.com has never been used. <laughs> Every so often, whoever owns it tries to sell it to me. And I keep on saying, yeah, I think, uh, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to pay that much. At some point, their price will come down to the point where I'll take it off the market. <laughs> you know, I think it's important to also recognize that, you know, on the non health side, on the consumer side, this is also a time when like eBay and PayPal, and Amazon were just finally starting to convince people it was okay to buy things on the quote-unquote Dr. Evil-style internet, right. Right? right? And the idea of your health information being on the internet, or I think that, that guy called it the tubes, right? Many, a series right. of tubes. That <laughs> a series of medication tubes, yeah. yeah. You know, it was, was unfathomable. And then here we are coming along, and I think, I think if, like, if I were to trace the core back to the outlet in the wall, we met through, I think it was either Ronnie Zeiger or Ross Martin or Missy Krasner. And, you know, I met Jane, I think, through you. And 
all of us had like these ideas, like just suppose health worked on the internet, what would that be? When did it like dawn on you that that was a thing you could try to break or do? Well, you know, don't forget there had been the most interesting year compared to 1998, 1999 was actually 2020. I mean, they're not similar in many years, but what you've seen is massive stock market what was it called? Irrational exuberance. I think Alan Greenspan called it way yeah. back when. <laughs> right. So I know. I mean, we've all been looking at you know the Tesla stock and for that matter, the the the, the uh, Teladoc and Lavongo stock and you know Zoom stock going up. And how are these companies worth? You know, lose money losing companies or whatever worth? You know, twenty, thirty times revenues. How does it all compute? Now, if you go back to that first dot com boom, right, which where companies like Amazon and eBay, you know, were trade were tiny compared to what they are now I yes mean, especially amazon believe you know ebay you could argue could have blew it but those first ones were all loss making they all had gone public their stock was trading you know this irrationally stupid level aol bought time warner you know at the sort of height of this insanity mm-hmm. um and then the whole thing collapsed now in that time you'd had four or five health online sites so the most best known one is webmd which merged with healthy on right Right to go public, mm-hmm. so that merged and that you know survived, and then you had a gazillion others. We had on health and drcoop.com and you know a bunch of pharmacy sites like drugstore.com, which were all trying to either do information and content online for patients, or were trying to do commerce, primarily drugs and drugstore type, you know, pharmacy related stuff. You didn't really have anybody trying to do online health records and data. However, if you scratch Dr. Coop hard at the time. They believed that what they were doing was building a thing where eventually everyone would register and get their own medical record and they would manage it. And Healthion kind of was, had the same idea as well, didn't end up going that way. So there were definitely people in the late 90s who thought that that was what they were going to do. And in fact, the startup I was in, which died a horrible death, called iBeacon, was similar to a company called WellMed. And WellMed ended up being purchased by WebMD and being the back sort of the, the, the guts of what they call WebMD Health Services, which was where health plans could put their information um, for their members, primarily for their claims. It was intended to do other data, but it was just based on their claims data. But it was kind of like a personal health record based off your claims. And iBeacon had the same idea. We sold it to two or three health plans, and, and we were, you know, we geared up anticipating we set up another five or six health plans, and then 2001 came. The stock market collapsed. All these e-health companies went away, basically. And all the health plans who had looked very scared and thought they were going to do something dramatic in this area stopped and gave up for like, I still have a letter from Aetna saying, this is great. We would love to do this. Can you wait two years? And the startup with no money left could not wait two years. Right. You know, health plans were slowly, slowly, slowly in the 2000s putting this stuff together. But, you know, the answer to your question is, did I believe it was going to happen on the internet? I thought that as broadband and Wi-Fi grew, we were going to get much more of the stuff that we're seeing happen today happen much more quickly. And that's really when I started Health 2.0 with Indu, Indu Sabaya, back in, we started it late 2006 and the first conference was 2007. That entire movement was intended to do two things. One was it was to like promote the idea that you could, as a healthcare organization, do more online and be more responsive to patients that way. And the second was, and this is the area, of course, that, that you know, you've been a big part of all these years, is, is allowing all that early, early stuff for patients 
to go to more mass markets so the patients could connect with patients. And, and those were the, these are the halcyon days, you know, you mentioned Ronnie, Ronnie Zyger from Google Health, but, but where he went later with, with Gilles around smart patients, this is the halcyon days of daily strength and patients like me and, uh, you know, a bunch of other patient-focused sites, which eventually, you know, if you looked at what was on Yahoo at the time, there were tons of Yahoo groups around health. And then the same thing is true, obviously, uh, you know, now as Facebook started taking on more and more people sharing information about the, the health and behavior on Facebook. And I think many of us believed that there was probably more useful stuff that would come out of the sort of patients sharing information online that would really impact the healthcare system more so than impact patients themselves. And I think I'll shut up and you, you, should, you should tell me <laughs> where you are. But, but I think that if I was to say what has not panned out that I think could have been a bigger deal is like the inferences from all the patient experience online has not made it, in my view, back into the healthcare system and changed what's going on in the healthcare system as much as I would have hoped or would have liked and thought was the potential for that. Back with our guest, after the break. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So, Matt, picking up on where we left off, I, I felt like when I was at the Health 2 conference playing piano, it was so exciting. I didn't have a nonprofit yet. It was just in the nascent days I was volunteering for Livestrong and figuring out even if I had a place in this whole ecosystem and, you know, the, the, the amazing primordial soup that was at that first event was extraordinary. Like you mentioned all these names before that they're still here, the flowers sifted and we've, we've done all the things. But I was the token patient that year. And I've always had this sort of disgruntled, you call yourself a curmudgeon, I call myself a muckraker, dystopic perspective that the health industry itself, the health conference industry itself, never really saw the patient as a consumer, as a customer, as a value add outside of the token, oh, here's somebody that will throw up on the panel. And you address that. You and India really were aware of that, whereas many of your competitors are still not aware of that. So here we are like 15 years later. What's your take on the role of the actual human patient, perhaps a curated patient in a chair, on a panel, you know, keynoting in the health 
conference space? Well, we've done it a lot. And, you know, we weren't the first. Um, there's the Patients Included movement, which uh, actually came out a little bit after us um, and, and now is, maybe I'll say, some on the board of SBN, which which we should probably mention as well in a second, but uh, is, is, I think, now part is part of SPM or kind of becoming part of SPM. I'll tell you more after we have our uh, strategic planning meeting, which I think is this afternoon. <laughs> nice. Um, but, but, but anyway, uh, you know, if you go back a little bit before us, uh, there was the um, Center for Information Therapy, which uh, came out of Healthwise, Don Kemper, and was run by Josh Seidman. And, you know, they had a series of conferences which included patients, but it was more we actually ended up, we had a joint conference with them the year after you were at Health 2.0 called Health 2.0 meets, uh, meets IX. And the, it was like a debate there between us, which is, is information prescribed to the patient by the healthcare system, or is information kind of this free-flowing thing that comes from the patient and the healthcare system should, could, should you know, infer it or find some way of sucking up and adapting to it? And I remember... We actually had a one-on-one a, a -on -one debate between, I think it was uh, Jamie Haywood from Patients Like Me, and I think he was up against Don Kemper, it might have been somebody else, and he played a, a cheap trick, the cheap trick soundtrack when he was, his walk-on music was uh, the cheap trick song, which is, you know, surrender, surrender, <laughs> because he said, we've come from the internet to accept your surrender, you know, basically. They, were, they had patients in the process, but it was more like, how does a system like Kaiser or whichever other big, big healthcare system deliver the right information to the patient to make sure they get the right stuff rather than, you know, the patients are out there exchanging information with each other. Now, going forward, there's a huge amount of questions, right, about what information exchange on the internet always was. It's about information now with the anti-vaxxers and the COVID stuff. And, you know, this is never going away, you know, get, getting the right information to people and who's trusted source of information and doing your own research and all that kind of stuff. But um, I, I think that since then, more organizations have figured out, yeah, we should have patients involved. I know the Health Data Palooza did a pretty good job of having patients, you know, uh, come for free and on the stage. And, you know, I've seen Casey Quinlan, for example, on the stage a lot there and, and, uh, and others. Having said that, it's really hard when you're running a conference to have this, as I said, a patient-only conference. So we had you know, tons and tons of patients over the years um, doing all kinds of stuff. So I think of Regina Holiday who's the great artist who came to, you know, a patient advocate who came to many, many of our conferences and painted and was on the stage. And I remember at one point putting, I think, five patients on the stage with uh, Father Mostashari when he was, you know, head of the RNC, talking about patients' rights. Because a lot of what was going on in the sort of politics of healthcare was can we use the patients as a, the tip of the spear to get access to the data that's been held by the, by the healthcare organizations? And right. that fight is still going on with the... Uh, Tesco regulations and the the the, the uh, 21st Century Cures Act and all that stuff. Having said all that, it's very hard when you're running a conference to run a conference just for the forum by patients without other support. And the nitty gritty unpleasant, and you know this, the nitty gritty unpleasant reality is that patients haven't got any money. <laughs> if you want to run a conference or an event, a company, a consultant, you've got to find someone who's, who's going to pay. You know, people have got to pay for what you're doing. What you're doing. And everyone who pays has got their own interests, right? Whether they're tech companies, drug companies, whomever. So you're at a risk of whatever you do of somehow compromising the original ideal. And, you know, I, I, I know, I mean, take Regina um, Holiday. She runs her Cinderblocks conference, which is sort of patients only 
uh, for patients by patients, and that's great. But I mean, it's it's a very small, low, you know, it, it doesn't have the scale and the ability to, to to get as widespread as a bigger, more commercial conference. But unfortunately, and this is the way of the world, maybe, and maybe something we can do something about, but I don't know how. By the time you get into, we're doing new things, new technologies, and new people, then you go back to where we were in 1999, right? And you have the stock market getting into it and saying, how can we make money out of this? Venture capital comes on board. And you can risk the patient voice getting lost. And I, and I think that you know people understand that the patient voice is incredibly important. But I think when you're running either a conference or even you know one of these, these companies, it's really hard to to keep that voice front and center. And we also know, and you know, a lot of the quote unquote patient organizations themselves get kind of compromised because they get sucked up into, you know, being the being being the the, the face of can we keep this drug more expensive because we're a you know we're a small population with a rare disease and you know it's in our interest for this drug to go on the market, but this drug might be incredibly expensive and you know are they being somehow used by the drug company? And, and there's a lot of criticism back and forth as you know, about different patient organizations for that kind of thing and, and who really are they benefiting. And, and I don't know there's a clear way out of this, but Matthew, on the conference side, I, I wish that there were there was a better sort of pro-publica approach where, you know, somebody wrote it, somebody who was disinterested but wanted to promote it could write a massive check and, you know, it could be, it could come through that way. And, and there have been instances, you know, Robert Johnson Foundation took a lot of patients to conferences and did stuff like that, but it's not like HIMSS or HLTH or Health to Own Its Day, you know, were based around just what was going on for patients. And I'm not sure there's a way of a way, way out of that. No, and the, the the balance is, of course, private sector, free market, and profit margins and investor ROI. With how do we decide? who does make the most money, who profits the most by identifying what mechanics make money. <laughs> and, you know, one might presume getting the right patient on the right drug and aware of this would be in everyone's interest. And it's not because it creates competition and no one wants that in the private sector of, of this crazy healthcare system. I think the narrative today is very different. Uh, obviously, the the benefit of progress in medicine is that not as many of us are dying right away anymore. And I hate to say it so callously, but it's a good thing. It's a good problem to have, but it's revealed this ebb tide. We talked about this before the show of like of access and choice and where is the burden of decision making and how do you make objective choices that benefit you and, you know, employer-based healthcare. It's a giant clusterfuck. But it's, oh, yeah. but it's, it's, is it better than it used to be? Or are we living in a space where we've reached a... Maybe maybe a, a tipping point or something like you call yourself a forecaster. I believe you are. I can attest to that right here on the show. Matt Holt, the forecaster. Where are we going? Like, like where can where can we find any optimism? Well, we are in an interesting space because since the ACA, um, we've kind of run out of open field. So if you go back from the dawn of time in the U.S., certainly, you know, there are many attempts to get, you know, universal controlled universal healthcare on the docket. It never, if you do your history, it's back in 1917 and 1950, you know, 1952, 1965, we got Medicare and Medicaid, 1977, I tried again, you know, didn't really try again until the early 90s with the Clinton plan. And then we got the ACA, right, just by the skin of our teeth, which was a minor change in 2010. But if you go back, what had happened all the time, the people who were not in the system, which 
uh, before 65 was the elderly and the poor, after 65 was people who were not well employed in a good stable job with health insurance, were continually being squeezed out. More and more people becoming uninsured, you know, some window dressing around the edges by insuring kids and what have you in the late 90s, but more and more people becoming uninsured and more and more people, even with insurance, unable to afford the medication, you know, things have been cut out of their insurance plans. And very, you know, if you go back to the early days when people had HIV and AIDS, literally, though, you know, AIDS wasn't covered as a disease, and the pre-existing condition stuff got really, you know, written to the plants. So, in other, in other words, the system made more and more money, but kept on excluding people who were, who were, for whatever reason, at a disadvantage. And more and more of those people with disadvantage got bundled back into the main system during the ACA. Now, what's happened in the last decade since the Affordable Care Act, I mean, the last sort of six or seven years since it's really been enforced, is that still some people aren't in there because for whatever reason the insurance doesn't cover them or, you know, the subsidies don't cover, they don't have, they, you know, they don't have access to the right plan. But also a lot of clever people uh, with money, with a dollar signs in their eyes, not sort of patient care so much, have gone into the business and figured out how can we increase the amount of money we make um, out of the current system. And that's why you've seen things like drug prices go dramatically, like the price of insulin and also many other drugs, you know, because in the end, Medicare is going to pay for it, and in the end, the plan is going to pay for it. That's why you've seen things like private equity companies charging into uh, hospitals, um, by hospitals, buying physician groups. Um, and that's why you've seen things like surprise billing. People deliberately, you can argue either providers forcibly being left out of insurers' networks, or you can argue the other way around that people are deliberately not joining insurers' networks in the hopes that they can get enough um, out of network people, you know, coverage for out of networks that they can either get uh, patients or insurers to pay or employers to pay. But you have a lot, of, you have these financial games going on. And we haven't seen really any significant reduction in cost, even though that was sort of built into the ACA. And worst of all, you've seen the big stable providers of healthcare, predominantly hospital-based systems, buying up other hospitals, buying up primary care groups, buying up specialty care groups, ramping up prices. And they're all sitting on you know, extraordinary reserves. And I was looking at UPMC to pick one, you know, one out of a number of guilty parties sits on $10 billion of reserves. Is this creating a, like more a monopolistic system? I mean, it's, it's kind yeah, of like I mean, putting like private practice is the only way to go now. Well, I mean, so I think that the healthcare system as a whole is, is now pretty monopolistic. In most areas, you've got one to two major uh, health plans with most of the market share and one to two to three major health systems and the health systems have done a very good job at raising prices for the health plans, which in turn means for the employers in that area, in, in that region, um, all the people buying insurance elsewhere. And, you know, you've got literally a factor of two, three, or even four being charged for the private insured people who are coming through, you know, be paid for in the end by their employer or by themselves versus what Medicare is paying. The only way it works that you keep these providers in business is because they get the charge, you know, employers four times what Medicare pays for the same damn thing, you know, and, and that makes no sense, but that's what keeps us going. Having said all that, you've got, you've got this uh, significant, extremely profitable until COVID hit, extremely, and actually not so that unprofitable after COVID, extremely profitable um, part of the delivery system, right, which is essentially doing what it always did. It's doing more and more uh, fever services, doing fever procedures. 
It's not really very interested in the kind of Kaiser capitated model. It's not very interested in the population health model that, you know, policy wonks like me talk about. It's not very interested in helping patients go to another system if they like it better and sharing their data with them, you know, sort of data portability stuff or, or access to, to data. They're not really very interested in either stuff because they're doing so well out of the current system. Now, you're now seeing all these kind of workarounds and conversations about social determinants of health and should the healthcare system or should health insurance be paying for housing or you know, education or you know, food or what have you. Um, and there's a, there's a rea realization that what we've got is still not delivering as good healthcare services to as many people as it should be. Um, and you've got, you know, some people are clearly left out of it paying ridiculously high prices. You have these horror stories of people, you know, rashing their own insulin and in some cases dying because they couldn't afford it. You know, you've got all this stuff going on. So my sense is that there isn't that much open field for the sort of financial part of the healthcare industry to make more. So we're going to have, by definition, post-COVID, more government intervention in whatever happens next. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't mean Trump will win the election, but I don't care who wins the election. You know, when you've got significant unemployment, you've got a massive deficit, you've got states and counties right, really in the hole financially. At some point, the healthcare system has got to get rationalized, in the, you know, not the least of which because it's just gone through this four or five month period where they realized that making money fee for service on elective surgery and then cross subsidizing to the rest of the system from that is not a sustainable way if you have pandemics and you can't do <laughs> elective surgery. So. I think we're going to shift towards something that looks more like a European or even Canadian model over the next little bit of time. It'll start you know, if the Democrats win with a, a public option. But at some point, the healthcare system itself is going to say, yeah, we need to stabilize at uh, a, a rational way to where we get paid. We somehow get paid for looking after a population. And we have to get rid of the, the sort of the, the little parts of the system which are looking just to bump up, you know, to do the extreme capitalism and bump up the cost of drugs and bump up the cost of of, uh, of, of surprise bills and all that kind of stuff. And I think that'll that'll slowly get wound wound out. So I think that's where we'll go, and we'll get closer to universal coverage. That you know, alongside that. I was waiting for the optimistic part. So you kind of got there at the very end of. The We've been. I've been looking longer. It's hard to be optimistic, right? I would love us to have, you know, the kind of the Dutch or the Swiss or in the German system where there's, you know, a decent amount of healthcare capacity, you know, not like in the UK where it's, it's a struggle to get specialty care. Um, but the health cost of the system is kept to a relatively sane level of GDP, like 11, 12%, not 18%. And when no one gets left out, um, and you probably end up with fewer, you know, you end up with uh, fewer doctors driving Porsches and, or whatever, and far fewer, you know, people in people in hospitals with the, with the, with their mansions, and their million dollar salaries, and uh, you know, same thing with drug, even more extreme within drug companies and and, and uh, insurance companies. But but that's what we've got, right? We've got a highly paying system with high prices, and at some point, you've got to smooth that out and figure out how do you encourage, incent, or mandate those healthcare organisations to do a better job of looking after uh, looking after. All the people in the population. And if you want to be optimistic, what I've been talking about lately, Matthew, is a thing called the continuous clinic, which is, okay, go back to where we started, which is using technology. The technology now that's really good is the sensor and communications technology that everyone carries around with them. Uh, we were talking about Apple earlier. They invented it, well, they didn't invent this, but they <laughs> perfected and capitalized on this whole thing. And now you've got the watch, the phone, all the stuff in your house 
right? <laughs> the Wi-Fi, the, the speaker phones, all the stuff that's around, and then all these cheap sensors that can now go on the human body, or in some cases in the human body, which can manage people and track them. And I, I call it the four M's. I mean, we have a technology system that's uh, always monitoring, always messaging, always managing, uh, and always measuring, right? So what it's doing is it's basically is, is that we now have these people who are now delivering care in the home for patients who could otherwise be in hospital, might otherwise be in hospital, and people, whether they, you know, no matter how healthy versus how sick they are, who can be tracked according to their relative level of, of acuity. What we haven't yet got is the system to manage that, right? Right now we have a system that pays you when you show up in a doctor's office and get something done to you. Uh, you show up in a, uh, in a hospital and you get something else that you admit and it's very expensive. What we need to do is figure out a way to systematically pay organizations to manage people where they are at the level of acuity that they're at. And somewhere buried in that, the optimistic part, is we also have seen this dramatic increase in artificial intelligence and, and ability to do stuff with data, which will hopefully start telling us when somebody is on the way to a bad event, but before they get there. Now, in your area of cancer, this is pretty damn hard, but you know you probably can imagine getting there earlier. But in many chronic diseases, a lot of the cost is in people who have, you know, who've got a chronic disease. We know they have a chronic disease, but something goes wrong and they end up in the emergency room. And then it's very expensive and they're very sick and they end up with, you know, going blind from diabetic retinopathy or, you know, having their foot amputated or something like that. So my sense is that we've got the technology now, and they want to be optimistic. We just need to put the structure in place around what I'm calling this continuous clinic in order to, to genuinely help patients and reward the healthcare system to manage this process fairly, rather than do this weird cross-subsidization where we're now doing that care kind of and making all and the healthcare system makes sense all its money doing, you know, intensive procedures on what uh, again I'll quote Ian Morrison, my my buddy and mentor, you know, overly intensive care of the the the, the nearly dead. <laughs> which there's a lot of that going on as well still. That was tough love. <laughs> a lot of tough love from, I'll just call you the chief curmudgeon officer because I think it suits you well. <laughs> you've been you've been through the grist mill, but I mean, you. I meant it before, you are literally a human Wikipedia. You need your own like Netflix series based on what you've been through. <laughs> Matt Holt is the founder of the, the healthcareblog.com, not healthcareblog.com, the healthcareblog.com, like the Ohio State University. <laughs> The president of Smack.Health, co-chairman and founder of Health 2.0, scholar, friend, champion. Thank you so much for coming on. We're going to have you back because, like, again, I'm going to get you your Netflix series. I guarantee you that. <laughs> Thanks, Matthew. It was a pleasure. And look, congratulations on all you've been doing over the years. And great to see you getting back behind the mic and uh, you know, running this all down. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Be well. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.